Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. I'm I'm cooking. I'm cooking. Horror is horror is not about dealing with difficult things. It's just about no, having no. a nice time with your friends. If if anybody says that a horror movie should be transgressive or scary, they're gatekeeping. Uh, all horror movies need to be the relative experience of wrapping yourself up in a bunch of fairy lights and diving into a bucket of candy. Yes. Yeah. And um, that's why we're doing what we're doing today. <laughs> well, welcome to the Cozy Vanguard, your cottagecore <laughs> source for left theory and comfortability discourses. Yeah. I mean, well, you can't be too leftist because that's a little bit, you know, that involves know some scary conclusions. <laughs> John, John and I don't really, we, we, you know, I think it's safe to say we don't really watch horror movies. I don't really uh, like we, them. <laughs> no, no, but, but Mr. Podcast of the podcast fame has hired us to do this horror movie podcast. <laughs> I, I still don't understand it. So we're going to basically talk about why horror movies are bad, how they should be artistic, even though no one's ever tried that before. Yeah. No and one... why it's important that horror movies make you feel cozy. Yeah, absolutely. No one's ever tried I, it's brand new it's brand new fresh takes on the horror form uh, <laughs> and if you're not on board with that then maybe that's a you problem <laughs> oh my god and to think people get paid to write that stuff uh and we don't you know what people don't really get paid for welcome everyone to horror vanguard <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great segue <laughs> Oh yes, this is this is your your horror movie of the week, everyone. Uh, I am Ash, one of your co-ghosts, joined as always by uh, uh, the source of vampiric majesty on this earth, John, aka at the Liquor Guy. How's it going, John? It's good. I'm 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 oiling up my chest. I am breaking <laughs> out my saxophone. Um, <laughs> let's let's get it on. <laughs> So even even through uh, the audio interface and the preamp, uh, that that near spit take laugh you just got out of me <laughs> peaked the audio. <laughs> I fucking clipped with that laugh. That's that's great. Um, we are. You know what? Sometimes we sometimes we try and we 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 always want to try and do like stuff that we think is going to be fun or exciting or a bit weird. But sometimes I your podcasters, your 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 humble hosts do need to kick back a little bit. So we're going back to the 1980s today. A simpler time. Uh, Cold War with Russia. Virulent republicanism on the rise in America. Completely different to today. And It's a t totally cozy. Labor unions having their power gutted on every yeah. every level of the country. Yeah. And um, we're going we're gonna to talk about um, 1987's film The Lost Boys, directed by... The legend of gay cinema that is Joel Schumacher. <laughs> now, Ash, my dear friend, would you mind explaining to to me, to the people out there listening, and to anyone who, for some reason, has never seen this movie, what is The Lost Boys about? Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it. The promise of vampiric ecstasy has always been, at least in part, 
an escape from the spatial-temporal calcification of capitalism. Is this what makes the vampiric so libidinally appealing? Vampires aren't bound by the factory model of time. They are free from paying rent and mounting healthcare costs. A single day's worth of groceries costing nearly $50 is not a problem for the dead undead. Vampires, through their undeath, are allowed to live in ways that we the living may not. Hierarchies of vampire kingdoms aside, what makes the vampire so appealing on material terms? It's material freedom. The freedom to gather in public spaces unblocked by flows of capital and its enforcers. The freedom to love and be loved without the threat of oppression. The freedom to explore personal enrichment without the burden of spending over half the waking day laboring for someone else's, else's profit. The call of the vampiric is the very shadow of what we could be if we were free. Horrifying in its potential, threatening in its responsibility, dark in all the ways we deny us to ourselves. The enclosure of the public commons generates the need for vampiric spaces, a necessary and vital force of decay pushing through the stultified concrete of capitalism's artifice. The lost boys remain lost, out of the shadows of the night and into the blinding, scalding light of day. The crepuscular moments of a firelit beach and the carnival on the boardwalk, a distant memory out of time. But a fire remains lit and a home awaits its residence. Beneath the street, a vampiric beach. Join us as we discuss The Lost Boys. Ah, uh, yes. It's always a good day when you're quoting the Situationists. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is almost every day around here, to be fair. I respect it. I respect it. Um... Let us begin then, as we always must, with our um, moving into the suburbs of Formalism Zone. The Formalism Zone. Zone, zone, zone. Zone, zone. Make sure, make sure to tip your Formalism Homeowners Association, everyone. It's very important. Um, and where would you like to begin? Uh well let's let's talk let's talk gay americana because this film is is kind of I- iconic in certain respects certain certain saxophone playing respects uh and and not just those um <laughs> you, what do you th- what do you think about Joel Schumacher then so I, th- I think th- I think this is really interesting Joel Schumacher cinema is ah. <sighs> I don't know. It's 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 always been in such an interesting place because you get like you get the Lost Boys, you get both of the both of the early Batman movies, right? The Phantom of the Opera, like the, those are kind of Schumacher films I think of when I think of his like weird sublimated gay Americana vibes. Yeah, it's not super sublimated. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, like, I mean, like, sublimated on like the not level. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not really subtextual, is it? Um, I think his first. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his first theatrical release was he was the replacement for John Landis on The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Um, there's, uh, but the big ones in the eighties are. St. Elmo's Fire, which is three years mm-hmm. before this, and the, Lo- the Lost Boys. So he has this real interest in 
beautiful young male ensemble casts. There's a lot of, like, even if you're going to read this as the most heteronormative critic in the world, you go, hmm, sure seems to be a whole lot of homosociality in these movies. Um, but it, again, it's barely subtext. It's, you know, the, the whole thing of, like, sometimes a cigar is just a metaphor for an erect penis. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the only thing you can say. Anyone who puts nipples on the Batsuit uh, is an icon of queer cinema. <laughs> we we know we know what was happening there, and I mean you're 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 absolutely right. This is this is like not not only is this endemic to the form of vampire fiction, especially especially the post and Rice vampire fiction landscape, but like this it's just all over this movie. We have Tim Capello, uh, which which you probably know better as sexy saxophone guy. Oh yes, uh, uh, from all of the gifts he is of gift fame. Um, in addition to being an actor and accomplished musician who played with Tina Turner, mm-hmm. so so now and now to be known as the gift guy is in- an interesting career arc. I mean, but, I like can... phenomenal musician, phenomenal musician. Man can play a sax. Man can he play really sax. Can. can play the hell out of that saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> but like the the rest of this movie, it's like we we have a, like a lot of standard like. We've got the homosocial triangle, right? Between Star, David, and Michael. Mm-hmm. That's set up. We, we have all of this conflict over domesticity, which is what I think we're going to spend most of this episode talking about. We have, we have the kind of standard vampiric homoeroticism of Michael drinking David's blood in order to become vampiric himself, being made a vampire, being read as a homosocial coding uh, uh, that is viewed as negative by everyone else in your kind of domestic sphere. It's kind of we're we're playing the hits today of gay vampire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um well, I guess that brings up a, a good question of like in your opinion what's the status of the vampire in the 1980s? Ooh, this is interesting. I think there's a lot of like goofy vampire movies coming out around this time. Mhm. I I think we're 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 cresting into this vampire resurgence, right? Because you have like all of the Anne Rice books getting more popular. You have movies getting made based on those. You have the kind of sexiness returning to the vampire after it's kind of languishing in the hammer horror. Which, I mean, the, I mean, give me Satanic Rites of Dracula any day of the week, please. But there is, there is Everyone kind has of a, needs. <laughs> right? The basic the Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy pyramid. The top one, the, the, the base, sorry, is just hammer horror vampire films. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But but I think but we're we're kind of like cresting into a moment right now where the sexy vampire is making a big comeback, and it's still kind of intermingled in with this kind of like comedic weirder vampire. Yeah, I mean you've got um, I think the the most obvious point of reference is Fright Night. Yes. Um, yep. Like a they re- which they remade what in like twenty ten twenty eleven something like that. Yeah. Um. Which is honestly a really solid, a really solid, again, lots of this kind of like um, sublimated homoerotic anxiety running through it. But it's a kind of like uh, sitcom-y setup of what if the mysterious neighbor who moves into the neighborhood is really a vampire. Uh, You've got this, uh, you've got Catherine Bigelow's slightly darker, slightly more kind of like explicitly violent. Um, near Dark, which is actually well, a kind of mm-hmm. underseen vampire movie, I think, in my opinion. Um, and of yeah. course, we're just a few years away from 
the extremely beautiful and very gay interview with a vampire adaptation. The mid- <laughs> extremely. Uh, is what, 93, 94? And I think, you know, at the same time, too, we're also in, like, this renaissance of, uh, like, older children's horror cinema. Uh, so The Gate is also mm. a late 80s horror movie. Um, we've got Monster Squad uh, coming out this time period. Not necessarily horror, but there's The Goonies. Uh, when was the first Child's Play? When, when was the first Chucky? Yeah, the first. So the first Child's Play movie is 1988. Yep. So just a year after this, because and of course on the other side of this, you've also got the emergence of like the the golden age of the slasher movie, where you so you have sort mm-hmm. of like films like Fright Night and Lost Boys, which are a sort of like young teenager movie, and then you have the kind of like older teenager movie of the first slasher films. Um. And it's so interesting to to compare something like The Lost Boys with something like Twilight because I may have mentioned I'm not a huge, I'm not a Twilight fan um, of the Twilight. <laughs> please, film. please see our four hour Twilight uh, first movie discussion uh, to to see how much John loved that film. Um, but like the kind of really the really sort of intensely interesting thing about it is the degree to which. A relatively sort of similar aim is much more kind of de-sexed. Like the these eighties like horror comedies are kind of like horny movies. There's 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 a sense of eroticism to it that Twilight just doesn't have. I I would agree. I would agree that Twilight is a much less sexy film <laughs> than any eighties vampire film. Yeah, I mean, and this is especially in the context of the Lost Boys too. Like the Lost Boys was originally written as like a children's horror movie, something something closer in spirit to like Fright Night. Yeah. Um, yeah. But during production, uh, they they wanted to make it sexier, so they rewrote all the characters to age them up to make that more appropriate. So it's it's like an explicit goal of the of the Lost Boys is to be an erotic film. Yeah, or at least to have that kind of undertone to it, right? This idea of like, uh, which again, I think is what makes it a good teenager horror movie because it's about sort of like this the 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 potential of finding out new things about yourself. It's it's got it's got a good balance too because of our two like leading leading guys in the Lost Boys, right? We've got. We've got Michael Emerson, the kind of older teen, and then we've got Sam Emerson, his younger brother. And we even have an early exchange in the film where Sam is like, he says says something like, oh, it's just your raging hormones taking control. So we've got the kind of, we've got this liminal space, you know, intrapubescence between the two. Yeah, I mean, isn't isn't this the whole point of like, you know, the kind of unspoken suburban anxiety about hormonal or pubescent boys? Where they, you know, they, you can't control them anymore. They become someone completely different, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, because in a way, the the premise of this film is very much like a classic sitcom. Um, but it's just about kind of exposing a lot of the anxieties and ideological underpinnings of that form. Oh yeah, I, I would even argue that this is a late teen exploitation movie. Yes, agreed. Yeah, it, it absolutely follows the formula, but it has much more like '80s comedic sensibility rather than like being a kind of like taboo, you know, like titulating scare film. Mm-hmm. Um, should we talk about the monsters? Yes, we need to talk about the monsters. So, uh, eagle-eyed viewers will have spotted the poster for Monsters Go Home. 
in the uh, uh, sunken hotel that the Lost Boys gang of vampires makes their home, uh, uh, clever film historians in the audience will also note that Monsters Go Home came out after that great earthquake that sunk the hotel into the deep. (laughs) (laughs) And so what I find to be really interesting about that is one, like we've got like, so in horror cinema, there's a tradition of you, you put a ripped up horror movie poster of another horror movie in the background somewhere to kind of signal like, Hey, I'm the new, I'm the new game in town for this particular style of horror cinema. Um, A classic example of this is in the basement of the cabin in evil dead you can see a ripped up poster for the Hills Have Eyes. You know, yeah. the Evil Dead is the new game in town when it comes to this kind of like rural, grotesque, monstrosity horror. And I think it's really interesting that in, in the background we see not a ripped up, but a pristine poster for Monsters Go Home. Yes. Well, this is the thing that's interesting, right? Which is the vampire is is a media creation, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a huge amount of intertextuality between often completely uh, a lot of kind of like meta intertextuality, right? So it's not in inter the text, it's intra in inter these uh, films as media objects, right? So it's not, mm-hmm. it's a very subtle fourth wall break, but the vampire is the most kind of media literate of the horror monsters. And so they mm-hmm. very deliberately place themselves into the a kind of meta commentary on their own law um you know this is the whole thing about like oh garlic doesn't work uh you know vampires comment on their own cultural mythos in a way that i don't think quite a lot of other horror movie monsters do oh absolutely absolutely you barely ever see i'm trying to think of zombie movies that engage that readily with this discourse and i can think of like what warm bodies Mm -hmm. as as, there's there's a post-Twilight movie that no one has thought of since it came out. Enjoy having warm bodies enter your consciousness once more, <laughs> listeners. Um, but, like, I, I think you're completely right. And I think that this film is is kind of, like, on a formal level, very, very, very interested in playing with our preconceptions as the horror movie, you know, like, movie-going public, right? Yeah. Because even, you know, like by the end of the film, when grandpa, you know, has this big reveal of like, oh, the only thing I can't stand about Santa Carla is all damn vampires. Um, that That is also one of those fourth wall breaks, right? Because what's one of the golden rules of vampire cinema and, and vampire literature? It's that the vampires are secret. Yeah. Uh, broad society does not know of the existence of vampires. It is a mystery. They are unknown. But by the end of this movie, we find out that like, no, actually... It's everybody but these fucking out-of-towners know that the town is lousy with vampires. <laughs> yeah, which is a fun detail. And it's like, it's all very tongue-in-cheek. And I sort of I sort of like the fact that the film likes the vampire kind of meta-story enough to do this sort of thing without having to be like, hey, look at us. Aren't we better than all these other vampire stories that have come before? Absolutely. Like, I think one of the things that's a real strength uh, on a formal level for The Lost Boys is that it's able to do exactly what you're saying. It's, it's able to kind of have fun with the quote unquote vampire mythology, right? Like v- vampire as this kind of like media hypertext. Mm-hmm. And then you yeah. get you get it's so loving about it, you know, yeah. and it's still able to retain this really good movie on top of it. Yeah. And you never get like arduously annoying bullshit where they're like oh well 
you know, we, we have to go look up the true ancient vampire tome. Like it never it never wastes our time as the audience by trying to instantiate a new lore. Yeah, it's like you it, know you know what vampires are. Get on board. <laughs> it reminds me of that so there's that line from Return of the Living Dead. Where they're, where they're like, you know, like they, they like shoot a zombie through its head and it keeps moving. And, and the one guy's like, what, you mean the movies lied? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's one final thing that I wanted to kind of like pick up on in our formalism zone. Um, which is that we've talked about the combination of horror and comedy before. But um, in that they are both kind of like similar in terms of the affect that they aim to generate but i'm wondering do you do you ever kind of think that sometimes those two things are they they contain within the other a sort of negation of themselves so a horror and comedy are are interesting because they seem so complementary but they're also really antithetical and yeah i'm just interested what do you think about that kind of dialectical relationship I, I think I think this is this is a really interesting line of questioning to bring out about the two genres because I I, I agree that on one level like horror and comedy would appear antithetical right saying something horrific when something comedic should be said might not elicit the result that you're hoping for but then I do always go back to that uh, line from one of our favorite theoreticians a renowned philosopher of left thinking Beetlejuice. Uh, uh, who once commented, I've seen The Exorcist 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. <laughs> and it's like, horror, really brutal horror movies get funnier if you watch them a lot because you, yeah. it's it's not a becoming numb to the horror. It's now you start to see the strings, right? Now, now you start to see the zipper on the costume. You see the weird little quirks and the acting. All of all of the goofy stuff that that is necessary to create a horror film starts to become apparent, mm-hmm. and then it starts getting funny, you know. And horror, you know, so something we talk about in the show, like horror wants to do things to your body, and like so, so does comedy. It's this deeply, you know, like felt genre. It's very libidinal. It's building up this anxiety and it's venting it by scaring you. Comedy builds up anxiety and it vents it by making you laugh. Yeah, absolutely. I could I couldn't agree more. Um. Yeah, once you can see that the the once you see the goo is just corn syrup, everything becomes funnier, <laughs> right? Because you start thinking those thoughts like, "Damn, they must be like, God, how uncomfortable that must that be to be sticky for so long." You know, like like under hot stage lights, just you know, trying to like like actually look scared when you're just like hungry and cold and covered in corn syrup. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I always, th- I think it's it's an interesting thing to kind of consider this idea of like, actually, the two two things are hugely complementary, but um, in their kind of formal affective quality, but often we don't consider them that way. We we consider them as being these negations of one another, and sometimes that can happen. Every everybody sat through like a moment when a joke falls completely flat, or the opposite when something that's supposed to be scary just makes you giggle yes yes and i, I think we we often don't consider the corollary of this enough right we we like, i think like the greater like media discussion sphere is overly focused on the kind of like comedy of horror but not the not the horror of comedy 
Mm. You know, like 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 we we talk a lot about like oh bad horror movies just become good comedy films as long mm. as they're earnest enough, you know. But we don't like you know like like uh, a lot of a lot of Netflix comedy specials, you know that that have been released oh let's say in the last year or so. I, I constitute a level of horror that that the exorcist would dream of yeah, yes this is entirely true uh i don't really want to see another middle-aged white guy with the the duct tape over his face <laughs> i don't really want to see that i just think it's too weird it's too creepy <laughs> yeah i i no, no kink at pride discourse but it's no ricky gervais anywhere <laughs> Uh, well, as we as we wrap up our formalism zone, where would you from where would you like to go from here? Well, uh, I, I think uh, the first place I would like to go is patreon.com slash horror vanguard, where if you too are sick of too many vampires, well, too damn bad for just less than a cup of coffee a month and maybe less than the cost of a wreath of garlic or a steak or some kind of like weirdly modified Jeep full of giant steaks that works in a way I've never been able to figure out. <laughs> you can help us help you by helping vampires. Won't yeah. we? We we want to ensure that the HB Crypt <laughs> continues to operate as a safe house and sanctuary for all of the boardwalk vampires that you might know. Uh, and to do that, we need your help. So, you know, don't don't spend your money on that mail order holy water. Instead, send it to us through patreon.com <laughs> and you too can help a vampire find a cool dark crypt for the day. Oh my god. Yes, we're we're doing we're doing like a, a, a like vampire UNICEF now. I'm so here for this. Yeah, yeah, like as a as a as a as a sad Sarah McLaughlin song plays in the background. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in the arms of a vampire. <laughs> oh, let us let us uh enter the the, the discourse zone. Zone, zone, zone. So uh, yeah, we just you- talked about saving vampires. Now let's talk about exterminating them with genocidal force. <laughs> I think we're going to have to talk about the Frog Brothers because um, they're the scariest characters in this movie. <laughs> they're like, they're, they're, they're if any part of the Lost Boys to me is overwritten and and needs to be cooled the fuck down, it's whatever the hell they're doing with the Frog Brothers. <laughs> I like, so they're like, they're like, what, like 10, 11, 12, something like that. Like tweens, young teens, they're Vietnam War veterans. They're also genocidal vampire hunters. I, they also own a comic book store, I think. I don't know what's quite happening here. Okay. Yeah. So like there's, there is this. There is this kind of weird bit of this film where it seems very attuned to like the cultural politics of the 1980s where nobody else in the film seems to be that in on the joke that the film is pulling. So it's like, oh, look, they love army men. And really, really the the kind of, not again, not even subtext of the film is like, oh, look, these normative, you know, these heteronormative male behaviors are actually genocidally violent. <laughs> Yeah, like I, 
Uh, what's their line? Death to all vampires, maximum body count. And that's like, like they keep they they they're, they're like, like I get I get the spirit of the joke, right? Like I get kind of what they're they're, they're like. What if Rambo was a tween and hunted vampires instead of like, I I don't know, like his his former Vietnam commanding officers, mm-hmm. like like, but that kind of. Rambo's got some scathing political commentary, right? You yeah. know, first first blood is is a hot film. And then like when you launder that into the Frog Brothers and their vampire hunting, like we're kinda they, I think like that that as its own movie would work. Two two teens kind of embodying the worst of like American militarized masculinity mm-hmm. and some quest to hunt hunt vampires. Like you could make something out of that, but there's just not enough time in Lost Boys to make them anything but a caricature and that just comes off as really odd. It is it's it's weird. They've they've got a weird arc. And again it's like, oh, it's endearing and you're like what is going to happen when these kids grow up? Right? Right? They keep encouraging Sam to try and kill his own brother in cold blood. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They they try to they try to murder a young child. They try yep. to murder a young woman. Yep. Like e- even even after there's plausible evidence to suggest that you can unvampire someone if you kill the head vampire. So even even after we've identified a cure, they're still like on on this quest for ultimate genocide. And like this is this is kind of like the worst of this kind of masculinized violence that shows up in horror cinema. This is this is literally like every vampire or every zombie movie dot exe nearly yeah, yeah, every yeah. um but but again it's like it's in this context of being set in like oh it's a sort of funny sitcom down on the beach <laughs> which just makes the whole thing even stranger and, and especially stranger because so i've always read the end of the movie right when grandpa is like oh this town is so full of vampires as as like a oh like the, the joke isn't that oh grandpa's quirky and he never told them the joke is that everyone knows Santa Carla is full of vampires except for these out of towners who just moved in yes the joke the joke is on them because they just move into town and they're like things are going to be great now that we're moving out and and like they just they just don't bother to look up or ask anyone and like it's just a given yeah and yeah, then yeah. when I go back and I rewatch the movie we get the scene at the beginning right. Where uh, the Lost Boys get into a fight with some other rocker looker types on on a <laughs> merry-go-round, and the security guard is like, "Get out of here!" And then and then he kicks out the other group too. And now when I rewatch that, I'm like, "Oh, are they both vampires? Are they like mm. rival vampire groups on this boardwalk?" Mm, because the town is reading. the town is the town is lousy with vampires. It's not. It can't just be the Lost Boys and the owner of, of a of a TV repair shop. Yeah. It's got to be the town. And then you get that line from the Frog Brothers where they're like, we believe that one member of the city council is a ghoul and another a werewolf. And you go, and it's like, okay, on. It's, it's literally, it's the whole town. So then when they see the Frog Brothers, are, 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 they, are they like, oh, their parents aren't raising them right. They're, they're, they're instilling in hatred that we've worked generations to fight against. <laughs> but I can't simply eat that child like I want to because that would be bad for the community. I... Absolutely love this reading. That's such a, that's such a great argument. I love it. And the, the, this isn't even like like the text invites this at the end with with Grandpa's comedy, and that further complicates the position of the Frog Brothers inside of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
and their kind of like weird mentality and especially when we're, we're gonna dig deep into this one but like this film's like soft homophobia as it relates to vampires and then you get the frog brothers existing within that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, like ah. there's yes there's a lot going on here and i think i think right a big kind of foundational starting point is discourses around domesticity and family life um of course so they move to they move to this small town um they move to uh, santa clara to because lucy mom has gotten divorced uh so michael and sam move out to to, to cali to be near their grandfather and so there's already a kind of it, it's it's this kind of 80s comedy that depends upon a lot of very family sitcom tropes but but there's already this kind of like sublimated anxiety around the status of the of the family home and uh, by proxy given the context of this film's director and all of the other interests that this film has anxieties around heteronormativity as well Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, the question of domesticity becomes like so layered in this film, right? Because we have we have Max, the head vampire, who lives in this kind of guarded estate that we, we don't get to visit, but we see the outskirts of in the film. Uh, we have we have Grandpa and Lucy's home. And then we have the, the Lost Boys kind of cliffside estate. Yeah. And I'm- each of these becomes a, a kind of center of reproducing different types and different valences of domesticity heteronormativity homophobia yeah i mean because what is it that max wants what is it that max really wants is that he wants to turn sam and michael into vampires so lucy can't refuse to be turned into a vampire as well because he wants her to do all the domestic labor right that's what that's what he wants right yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is this is literally, literally just like the like. Oh, he doesn't want a girlfriend; he wants a mommy. Like, like that's yes. this, this yeah. movie. <laughs> yes, yes, that's it. That's 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 what the that's what's on. Uh, that's what he's hunting for. And this is this is uh, okay because we get the, we get this like so. Let's let's talk about this. Read David and the Lost Boys. Because they're they're doing something very similar, right? They have Star, they, they abduct a child and turn him into a vampire. So they're also kind of recreating this heteronormative family unit. But then David David also is like, hey, wait a minute, never mind Star. There's Michael. There's Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um Yes. So how do we how do we how do we make sense of this? How do we how do we because uh, I think obviously we can talk about things like found family. We can talk th- yeah. about things about like the privatization of public space, the exclusion and policing of youth culture, um, and all of that is, of course, is deeply bound up within kind of queer and LGBT culture as well. Especially in the 1980s, this is such this yeah. is such a kind of vital bit of historical detail. Right? We, we could talk about raids on cruising locations. Yep. We we can talk about like which is like. Re- reads very similar to what's going on with the vampires in this movie. Yep. Uh, you can talk about, you know, houses and bull culture and like all of these other things that are kind of like latent. And it's just that it's placed all of those um, 
all of that kind of libidinal economy on under the skin of an idyllic fictionalized California town. And I think it's I think it's that idyllic vision that I find to be so intriguing in the context of Lost Boys. Mm. Because I think you can kind of you could read the Lost Boys gang as doing the kind of worst of homonormativity. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they're they're attempting to just force any kind of like homosexual existence into the mold of a hegemonic cis heterosexual shape. Mm-hmm. You know, and then reading that as a, a cultural victory, right? You know, the the same people who thought that the fight for gay rights is over now that gay marriage exists, right? You know, like that that same mentality gives us the 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 horrible bastards who do the LGB without the T bullshit. Fuck that. Yeah. And like like you you can read David as being kind of a force caught in that locking groove, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's trying to recreate that. Paradoxically, I, I think you can also successfully read David and the Lost Boys as just as you were saying, like the kind of like the 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 found family, this kind of like renegade space in a culture that's actively doing raids on cruising locations and like further criminalizing being queer, forcing them in the outskirts. And well, then this is this is just that location. This is that outskirt location. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he literally is... he literally turns up outside his bedroom window and invites them to come to come out to come yes. and jo- to come and join us, right? Exactly, exactly. Like, like, like this is this is functionally identical to some kind of like gay underground rave location. You know, like that's that's literally what they're doing here. Yeah, who who amongst us does not wish to be? taken away from our boring heteronormative domesticity by hot Kiefer Sutherland who wants yes. you to who wants you to stay up all night and party like <laughs> and this, this is I think the kind of like liberatory impulse that the, the vampire is, is such a is such a being of contradictions right because simultaneously you have these kind of like discourses of oppressive power dynamics and hierarchies and vampire lords and their landed estates but then you also have Kiefer Sutherland helping Michael come out, wink, wink, audience. And then that is wrapped up inside of like, that, 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 is, that is a classic rom- like romantic literature fantasy. The, the, this, this powerful, domineering, dark, masculine figure sweeping you away to some kind of eroticized adventure. Yeah. Except now, now we replace our like blonde-haired, innocent woman with Michael. <laughs> yeah. Why? Because you have to ensure that uh this this is why it's tied up within the kind of continuation of the the heteronormative family right you have to protect the family home you know there's all of these kind of reactionary things about like absent fathers and like all of that is kind of like swimming around in the discursive soup that is this movie right and so yeah we we get that at the end with the frog brothers too like like the the whole the penultimate conflict is a defense of lucy and grandpa's family home yeah, it's, it is, yeah it is, it's literally a fortification of the family home to yes. keep to keep those dangerous sexy outsiders outside it <laughs> <laughs> they're 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 literally doing like castle doctrine stuff to to stop the vampires and there's no like the you know like what makes the comedy work is that like but you know again like like not to not to bullet you know like ride this point into the ground but like you get this bizarre situation where like okay well if the town is full of vampires how how is the rest of the town responding to this mayhem like is there like an official process for becoming a vampire in this town or is it just kind of like an accepted thing that happens that like like are they gonna wake up in the morning and like 
people are going to be like, oh, you have to kill a bunch of vampires again last night, Fred? Oh, sucks. Suck every summer, am I right? Every single summer, those damn vampires turn up on the boardwalk. They get right? into or fights. Are, are, are a bunch of vampires going to show up and be like, what the hell are you doing? And then Grandpa is... is I, how, how do we read Grandpa in the context of this? Is he like the Frog Brothers? Is he one of these genocidal freaks? Yeah. You know, like... Has, has Grandpa Lost just... Boys gets weirdly complicated. Yeah, has Grandpa just basically done a hate crime? Yes! Like, yes! Uh, although, in fairness, you do have to... You do have to talk about your incredible point of comparison between uh, the Grandpa and our favorite... Our problematic favorite philosopher. Slavoj Žižek. So we've got, we have this amazing, amazing moment uh, that I just keyed into this time watching Lost Boys through. But uh, Grandpa, Grandpa is talking with Michael and Sam and he's like, okay, you know, once a week, the mail is going to bring me the TV guide. You'll, you'll see the address label is slightly curled up in a corner and you'll be tempted to peel that off. But don't, because you'll rip the cover and I don't like that. And then the one, the one kid is like, I didn't know you haven't had a TV. And he's like, I don't. But if you read the TV guide, you don't need the TV. Ooh. <laughs> and I'm like, this is that that is literally Zizek's point about like libidinal anxieties and teledildonics. Yeah. You know, when when Zizek is describing his ideal date where like a woman comes over and they have their sex toys fucking in one room so that they can go past that anxiety and just hang out and enjoy each other's company in another. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, grandpa, grandpa. Grandpa might be a eugenic maniac attempting to kill every vampire in his hometown, but he also has interesting opinions about television. Who's to say whether he's good or bad? <laughs> Who's to say whether it's good or bad? <laughs> I think the, the like the big, and it, honestly, it feels kind of weird to we rewatch this film specifically in the context of like a lot of the reactionary moral panicking, especially in the U.S. but increasingly in the U.K. about. Um, LGBT and queer people in relation to children because like a lot of this is about missing children right and it I don't know am I am I kind of reading too much into this if we're talking about these anxieties in the context of vampires who are uh not so subtly very queer coded um what do you think about that what do you think about how this film is kind of working out that discourse so I, I think I think there's like a couple ways to 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 peel this apart so this movie is heavily based on um peter pan uh what's the what's the Anne rice book where they turn where lestat turns kids into vampires and they get in trouble i cannot oh my god i'm blanking on the book and or movie mm. wait that's interview with the vampire oh my god is it yeah yeah <laughs> Right. Anyway, so this is this is partly based on Anne Rice's writing. This is partly based on Peter Pan. So we already have a lot of like youth vampire c- kind of coming into that. That's where a lot of that energy comes from. But I think like the, the vampire, no matter what you do to the vampire, it's inexorably queer coded. I, I don't think that's something that you can ever excise from a vampiric text. And so like that puts us in this weird space where like. Especially in the context of the Frog Brothers and potentially Grandpa. Right, this this kind of eugenical impulse to drive the vampire out of your community, and now who's stealing your children? It's those gay vampires. Yeah, and and the movie is kind of really difficultly riding the line of that conversation, and that plays into I think broader conversations as well, with like 
while watching this movie again, like I can't help but notice a bunch of like, I don't know, true crime paranoia on the outskirts of, of this movie. The constant messaging of missing children, the seeing missing children, images everywhere, mom finding a child, just walking around outside of the store. I mean, in you many know, ways, like, in many ways, like uh, we we I, we kind of started talking about this right at the beginning, but it's like we are still living in a kind of 1980s. Mm-hmm. right crises of capitalism donald trump cold war with russia increasing reactionary politics attacks on unions attacks on uh sexual and racial minorities and it's like i guess what we get to see is the is the kind of flowering of these seeds of reactionary discourse that even in the 80s a gay filmmaker like joel schumacher was intensely aware of mm-hmm. absolutely dude totally and, and I think we could always like you know read this because the vampire is like it's a it's a creature of contradiction you know mm-hmm. it, we can read this coming from the other angle too where it's like okay well like no like those children aren't missing they're all they're all showing up in these like vampire covens right like they're not missing because of the vampires they're missing because of this heteronormative society that excludes them intentionally you know like the thing making the children disappear is straight society not gay vampires. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like where is where is the true danger? Where is the true danger? Is it from Kiefer Sutherland and all the other lost boys who formed themselves as kind of strange hyper uh, you know, strange model of a kind of found family or is it in the people with lots of weaponry and a desire to do violence upon you because you're different? Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And this is the this is the true crime paranoia point. All, all over again right the danger isn't the sources of crime that are hand wrung in every single true crime podcast and youtube show and tv show like it it's it's the the people who are listening to true crime <laughs> yeah absolutely that that like like the, the the true crime aficionado will be the person officiating like whatever kind of rise of fascistic violence because it will buy you a kind of psychic protection from yes. whatever the perceived crime is yes absolutely extremely true um is there is there any as we kind of like start to kind of wrap things up what do you is there anything else you want to you want to kind of make sure that we cover um so i want to talk about the boardwalk for a bit you know we can, we've got some time yet we can relax play some yeah. carnival games chill so so one thing that i think is really worth exploring in the context of this movie is the kind of enclosure of the public commons Mm-hmm. Even within the context of the United States, that's really never had public commons, or at least has not, had does not have public commons in the same way that England does mm-hmm. or did. And I think that's it's really interesting to kind of like look at look at spaces like the boardwalk or, or places where like youth culture could have congregated in the past, and kind of see today how much further that's deteriorated and how little space that the youth broadly. Or in, and adults additionally have to be outside without paying money for something. Yeah. And of course, you got to spend money to go hang out at the boardwalk. But how much harder it is to spend money to hang out at locations today? And like, how many additional things are criminalized? How many more fees do you have to pay? You know, like it's it's just oh my god. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I it is. Uh, I th- I think it's the oldest. 
because uh, it was filmed in Santa Cruz, right? It's filmed at the Santa Cruz Boardwalk, mm-hmm. which I think is the oldest surviving amusement park in California, right? Um, oh, that's cool. Which is a cool detail. Uh, yeah. And it's, the, yeah, you're completely right. This idea of like, and the fact that it's filmed there is very important because it's it's a living reminder or a kind of visual reminder of the things that you no longer have the same levels of access to. Um, mm-hmm. As as it's glad as as I mean, youth culture is very heavily policed, very heavily disciplined, um, very heavily regulated, and actually, it is far harder, um, precisely because of things like suburbia and the fact that you can only get around with a car, and you're often yep. trapped inside your your home with your family that you can't you you literally can't get out, you literally can't kind of see uh, see the people that you want to spend time with. Oh, absolutely. And we, we can even turn to COVID for some great examples of this, right? Like mm-hmm. all, all of that policing, right? You know, like there, there are so many videos of like people hanging out in a public park during pre-vaccination COVID and, and the cops would be fining, you know, like, you know, like a, a group of black people hanging out and surrounded in a sea of white people not getting fines. Yes. You, you know, like like these the kind of laws that enforce the closure of the commons exist expressly to punish sources of possible dissent from hegemonic sources of power, right? And so, like, and even when we look at, like, you know, like, the, the classic commentary, like, if the punishment for a crime is a fee, it's only a crime if you're too poor to pay. Yeah, you, if you're too poor or you don't have a job or you're young yeah. or a combination of all of those things. And so, like, a, a former public common where now, like, a bottle of water costs $7, you know, like, oh, that's that only excludes you if the sound of a bottle of water, seven dollars, you know, tr- triggers a minor financial nightmare to you. You know, it's expressly designed to limit access to sources of possible dissent, i.e., in this case, the working class. Yeah, exactly. And it's 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 why there has to be this insistence on. Like being just that there is a there is a powerful kind of freedom in being able to sneak out of your house at night right <laughs> and and, yeah. and hang out with your friends that is that is an important liberatory act um and the the i think cuz I, I i think like the disciplinary and policing enclosure of the commons for young people specifically comes from this desperate desire to mitigate any kind of risk because mm-hmm. because above all the imperative is to protect the children you know won't somebody think of the children neglecting for the fact that you know you can perfectly think for yourself um and th- th- there's <laughs> there's so much kind of wasted potential in this desperate enforcement of a kind of regulation that produces that aims at aims at safety ostensibly but only produces kind of depressive conformity like it's important that's an important thing this idea of being able to you know to literally rebel to literally run away from home if only for a few hours to sneak out and hang out with your friends is this is why the vampire like this is what you said right at the top of the show this is why the vampire still has a thrill to it yeah, abs- I absolutely, absolutely agree with this, right? And, like, the, the, this is the kind of, like, political and libidinal draw of the vampire, right? It It is an exit path, right? It is, if you will, a kind of mythological instruction manual for how to escape this thing. You know, like, 
the, you you go out at the night, right? You go out during the night where everything is closed, right? Where these kind of forces of kind of capitalistic recapture are quieted. Mm. You know, like like there, there there's the kind of seed of this like vampiric libidinal escape path, and and I totally agree with your point about security and safety, right? Like it's it's just it's all like like all of this discourse about making children safer it's nothing but political theater right like yeah, like absolutely. The, the 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 kind of the same political voice that will be like oh we have to have a curfew for all children and if your child is seen uh more than 25 feet away from a parent the parent can get arrested and your children can get taken away and like all of this stuff that that same voice will then turn around and say we can't give free lunches at school because that's communism Yes. And my truck's riding height has to be 27 feet, so I can't see anything unless it's at least 90 miles away from me. Yeah, it's like, not really like, it's not really about well-being. It's about yeah. it's about a kind of it's about a kind of authoritarianism, right? This idea of yeah. like denying agency. This is I mean this is why the tradition of family abolition is so important because it emphasizes the like a really good example, so like a big discourse in the the absolute madhouse that is UK politics, the, the absolute, you know, just overheated and deeply regressive discourse uh, of UK politics is um, someone complaining that schools are allowing young children to identify as cats. Oh my like, God, I saw that, yeah. Obviously, this is this is just kind of transphobic bait, but I'm also like, it just seems a way of creating a world in which the imagination, freedom, and agency of children just get stamped out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, I, I used to hang out with my nephew and he would pretend to be a race car. Like he would, he, <laughs> he, he thought he was a race car and who am I to tell him that he's not, right? Like, you know, and this, and so obviously the kind of like the moral panicking around um, trans people specifically is a huge part of this regressive discourse. But again, I just think this is why the emphasis on the kind of like the possibilities of freedom for for youth culture generally is so important to maintain because like that space of imagination is such a fragile thing and it's out of that space that the new can emerge right and like you know like so so like the the the, the cat thing the, the, that same kind of like conservative myth making happened here in the states as well but it was centered around like oh they they have litter boxes set up in bathrooms for the children who identify as cats and of course, that's a lie. Um, but yeah, there, just, but anyone who thinks about that for like five seconds will go, "That doesn't seem like a well, true." Thing, because conservatives are only ever capable of telling on themselves, right? Like, like every single thing they say, they it, it is it's literally just the inverse, right? The thing that's true is that in American classrooms, in some American classrooms today, you can find cat litter, but the cat litter was placed there in case there's a lockdown because of a school shooter and the kids can't go to the bathrooms. It's literally a byproduct of a conservative American gun culture that put cat litter in American classrooms. It's yes. not it's not like the woke LGBT mafia that did it. It's yeah. it's the NRA. Where right? is and this, where is the danger? Like I said, where is the yes! danger coming from? Yes, and this uh, this is exactly what I was going to say in the context of the Lost Boys with Michael. Where is Michael at danger? Right? Where is he experiencing the most threat to his life and well-being? Is it with the kind of queer coded lost boys vampire coven, right? Where, where he's kind of like open to exploring who he is, what he wants to do in the world, kind of finding these new directions. Or is it at the homestead where when the, when his family senses the first sign of, of some kind of dissenting identity, 
the the first thing that is done is his brother literally hires pro- a proto-fascist goon squad to exterminate him. Yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. Where is the danger? And it's like when you actually start to investigate this, you I mean, we have always been a pro-vampire podcast. Always. <laughs> Uh, you actually come to sort of the understanding of just how important that is and the ways in which the vampire is, in the 80s especially, I think functions as the symbol of a, po- a possible way out and a, po- and a possible counter uh, countervailing force. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm not, um, I'm, not, I'm not laughing at what you're saying because what you're saying is not only correct, it's poetic. But uh, the worst idea just popped into my mind. Um, you, so, so you were saying the way out, and we're talking about vampires. And the Lost Boys kind of, it just occurred to me that the Lost Boys is kind of a good functional example of Mark Fisher's exiting the vampire castle. <laughs> brace because what brace we yourself, see- everybody. We're about to write the worst essay you've ever read in your life. Just, just hit, hit, just turn, turn it off. Go listen to Agab or something right now. This is the end, everybody. Bye. <laughs> um, but no, what we kind of see here is like, so there, there are the Lost Boys, right? Kiefer Sutherland's gang of of hot vampire weirdos, and then there's Max, the head vampire, the business owner, the guy who lives in a gated compound, right? The the guy who's trying to force this kind of domestic sphere to exist. You know, the guy who's ruining Michael's life, the guy who's ruining Lucy's life. It's it's the landed business owner. You know, it's not his status as vampire doesn't make him bad. It's his status as kind yeah, of pa- class this material patriarch. Yes, it's class. There you go. <laughs> We're back. Yeah, we've solved it. We've solved it, everybody. Oh, see, that wasn't that didn't hurt. That, you know, only a slight sting. That wasn't so bad. Uh, the moral of the story is uh, be gay, do crime, make sure you sneak out after curfew to hang out with your friends um, and, uh, you know, hang out with cool people who play the saxophone. That seems to be that seems to be the moral of the story. That, I couldn't agree more. And, and look, I'm always going to invite a vampire into my house. No questions asked. It's yes every time. As a rule, I don't even ask for their name. I'm just yes. Come on in. How are you? Uh, but a boss, a landlord, a, a never, 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 ever. Nope, nope, nope. There are, there, are, there are mystic seals blocking the entry of those foul demons into my abode. And I think, I think that's, that's, that's kind of the breakdown in this movie here is, is they, they're, they're, they're conflating two things that are distinct and entirely separate. Mm, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Remember, the vampire's not your enemy. The, the you know, the, the the kids the kids hanging out under the boardwalk are not your enemy. As always, it's it's your boss. Right, the Rainbow Coalition, but now we add vampires. <laughs> <coughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, we've had fun. We've had fun. I, I I think we've had a lot of fun today talking about Lost Boys. This was I was you know, like this. This is one of those movies where it's just kind of like so good. I was like, oh, are we really gonna have like a whole episode of discourse? And it's like, nah, nah. We're, I feel like we're just heating up, and it's like the hour mark is right on us. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um, do you want to do you want to add anything else? Should we should we wrap it up here? I think I think this is a good a good point to exit the Lost Boys castle. <laughs> 
Uh, thank you, <laughs> listeners, for joining us uh, for today's summer horror movie episode. Uh, we hope the we hope the vibes were good. I hope the vibes were challenging. I hope the vibes were weird. I hope the vibes were vampiric. I, I hope you wake up in an abandoned hotel and a cliff in California. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where I'm going with this one anymore. I, I'm just I was just gonna, I was just going to start doing the plot of Lost Boys. Uh, let's stop keep, that. Keep us here for another 120 minutes. <laughs> let's stop that. Bye, everybody. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.